Hello, my name is Amber Johnson, and welcome to the Public Help Me podcast. This podcast will explore a wide range of topics from social determinants of health to COVID-19 and immunity to women's empowerment. The goal of this podcast is to have candid conversations with people who are subject matter experts, students, people who are growing leaders in the fields of public health and medicine to have these conversations that will answer the questions and really help to spark the interest of people who are not only asking the questions in the general public, but are interested in the fields of public health and medicine alike. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast and for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Public Health Me podcast. I am joined here today by um, Lakia Thomas and Sandra Najuna, uh, and we will be discussing health disparities. Our topic for today would really be in despair health disparities that occur in minority and disadvantaged populations, and really what we can be doing as public health professionals to mitigate these issues. So Lakia is actually an environmental health specialist who works with the Jefferson County Public Health doing regulatory inspections on facilities that service the public. Currently, she works as a COVID-19 outbreak investigator assisting facilities regulated by Jefferson County Public Health with implementing mitigation and prevention strategies. Lakia has been an innovator of many programs and organizations for over 15 years. She has worked to empower and provide communities with resources to build self-sufficiency. Thank you so much, Lakia, for being here today. And also we have Sandra Najuna, who is the Senior Project Manager for Quality Contracts at the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Sandra is a quality management liaison for all AIDS Healthcare Foundation, Ryan White contracts in all 25 locations around the United States. Sandra has worked with health care centers on several quality improvement projects to improve rates of viral load suppression and cervical cancer screening. So thank you so much, Sandra, for being here as well. Thanks, Amba. Yeah, so I really want to get into the topic of health disparities and really pick you ladies' brains on really what it is, what health disparity is, and really what we can be doing, and some of the, the background things that really can cause people to be more prone to health disparities. So the definition of health disparities, as many of you all may not know um, in the audience, are preventable differences in the burden of disease, injury, violence, or opportunities to achieve optimal health that are experienced by socially disadvantaged populations. So with that definition, we really start to look at some of the populations, even just even in our own country, of minority individuals who are disadvantaged in a lot of regards. And even as we've seen through the COVID-19 outbreak and various things that have kind of happened in the last year, we see so many health disparities that were kind of latent in our society. And now we want to really bring attention to some of these things and also what COVID does on top of these health disparities that are already in place. So really, I want to kind of talk to you ladies about the things that are going on currently and how you feel that fits into what we've been doing in terms of health disparities and quelling them. Well, I guess I will start here. When it comes to health disparities, I always say it has to become personal in order for something to happen. I learned when I was working on my master's, 
when breast cancer became personal, that's when it became big. And who do who does it have to become personal to? It has to become personal to the majority. Okay, someone that is not within that race um, or even within that class. And so Nancy Reagan then had breast cancer and it blew up. And that's when it became a personal issue because they felt at one with that person. And therefore now you have the, all the organizations, all the nonprofits, you have money being raised. And so I think when we begin to look at how we want to address health disparities, I think that's where we have to begin. It has to now become a personal issue to us. We really have to take investment into, in, into whatever that disparity is. Of course, as we see within our own families, uh, as women of color, we have tons of disparities. Begin to look at where that comes from, you know, and, and where can you begin to take that personal? This is your grandmother. This is your mother. This is your father. That's personal enough to me, but I do feel that's where we need to begin. Thanks, Lakia, and thank you, Amber, for this very much needed conversation about disparities. For me, with disparities, I would like to start at the United States. As, as an immigrant, because I, I lived in, in Uganda for the first 23 years of my life and I walked into the United States and uh, like the initial idea you have is that everyone has access to the same things. And then the longer you live here and the longer you get educated and knowledgeable about what's happening around is that in general, whether it's education, housing, we have different stories here in the United States. I live in Los Angeles and there'll be um, there'll be a street in Los Angeles where there's like these high rise buildings with people that and all sorts of money living in them. And just downstairs is people that are not stably housed. So it's 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 amazing, like if just the way the United States is set up, it's in such a way that when you live in the same exact location and literally where the pin is, you are living a whole different life. And when you look at it starting right there, then you see that when it comes to health, that will not be a surprise. Uh, as Amber mentioned, I work in AIDS Healthcare Foundation. And right about the time I started my job as a Ryan-White, in the Ryan-White contracts in charge of quality management, that was one of the first projects because they had done a research and realized that they, there are disparities in, even in HIV care. And at that point, they identified four groups, which was, um, uh, this is specific to HIV care, but uh, like uh, men who have sex with men of color, uh, transgender people, those who identify as trans, uh, Latina and African-American women, and the youth. They realized that there's a disparity. Like when you look at the rates of the performance measures, for instance, viral load suppression, it's different in those particular categories compared to the rest of the population in your health center. And I was amazed that actually there's a, there's a group of people that's identifying this because we are all aware of it, but it's not really quantified. So um, just, you know, from the beginning of disparities, like I say, just where we live, if, if you look outside your window, or if you're in an apartment building, the person in the next apartment building probably has a different story. And that filters into so many parts of our lives, including health. And that's where disparities start here in the US. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, ladies, so much for really defining that from you all's own perspectives, because I think that disparities really mean different things for different people. And as Lakia stated, it has to kind of happen to you in order for it to be a big issue. And I think that's one of the things that 
in this country becomes a bigger issue for us, if it's not directly affecting us, if it's not directly affecting our family members, we don't care about it. We could care less about what's happening in a different country unless it's like, oh, this is the biggest craze or this is something that, you know, social media is pointing out. Why can't we do our own research and really look in our own backyards, our own front yards sometimes to figure out what is actually happening around us and how can we work to quell those things? And I really look at a lot of the different factors that really play into um, health disparities. When you really look at social determinants of health, which a lot of people, they kind of push to the back of their minds, but you have to have those on the forefront because if you don't, then you can't really address someone's health fully. You can't say, oh, well, you should take this medication to, you know, an African-American patient who may have transportation issues, who may have five kids at home that's relying on them. They may be the sole provider for their families. They may be living, of course, in poverty, low socioeconomic statuses amongst a bunch of other comorbidities that they may be dealing with. So then you have this person being told by physicians, being told by health systems to do something to make, an, to make a change in their own particular lives. But how can they do these things without the tools necessary in order to allow them to have a leg up? Whereas maybe down the street, as you mentioned, Sandra, and even in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles County, you think about the fact that there are, there's Beverly Hills and then right outside of some of these mansions right down the street, you have homeless people. I've seen it. I lived in California for a good portion of um, my adolescence. And it was very disheartening to see how homeless people would just walk in front of these million dollar mansions. And it got me thinking about the idea of what kind of health are these people going to see? What kind of long-term implications will result from these lifestyle, particular choices, sometimes in some cases, and or things that are beyond their control? What do we do about these things and how do we kind of work to quell these things in our own societies? I think that's a big, that is a big task. It is a, a big question. And I think it just, it goes back to, like you said, looking in, in your own backyard, but there's so many layers to it. And so when you, once you first understand that, I first think of generations. There are so many layers to that. There are things that your mother and your grandmother and your great grandmother, everybody else, your cousins have passed along in your family. I think about the things that my grandma makes for the holidays first, food, number one. You know, we, we have all these comorbidities that are often perpetuated by food. And, but where does that come from? That's what was given to us. So you think about generations and generations of our ancestors. This is what they brought to the table and this is their legacy. And you stop to think like, well, who am I to stop a legacy? Who am I to stop a tradition? And so then you, you kind of halt like, I don't want to touch that. So as we see, that's where that ends. You know, then you have heart disease, you have high cholesterol, you have high blood pressure. It just starts with the individual and, and you just, have to take a stance on something somewhere within your home and then once you start going into the United States well that's that's a whole other animal <laughs> but you know individually you know it, it definitely can start with you that's like yeah I wouldn't have said it in any other way because uh, actually the only thing I would add to that is the conversation 
I know that sounds very millennial to have conversations about things, but we need to have a conversation about disparities. And it's a conversation we need to have in our homes. It's a conversation we need to have in our workplaces, in our schools. I went to University of Southern California for my master's. And I, I remember like having to confront the idea of disparities from the stories they tell us about the Tuskegee experiment, then you realize why there's a mistrust with the healthcare system, for instance, for the African-American population. I remember those are those are cervical cancer video that one of our professors worked on that was targeting the Latina population because it's taboo to talk about anything sexual, including sexual health even if it's not sex in itself. Uh, and, uh, and that worked in this beautiful um, telenovela. Uh, it was a telenovela type of health education because you know the, um, the Hispanic community, they, they do a lot of telenovelas. So it was like a telenovela approach to a holiday meal while they were using like the tacky to give, uh, to educate them about how cervical cancer screening is done, what a pap smear looks like. I know it's fun, and, uh, but, and I know like I'm, you know, touching a lot of issues right now, but I'm just talking about the conversation because that's the first time I was introduced to the idea that I probably was seeing something, but if as a public health student or as a student before you even leave, school you're already aware of that i think it opens up your mind when eventually i did have to spearhead this project i remember one one of the health centers where i was going to do this i had um focus group discussion and we sat with providers so from the medical director all the way to the front desk and they were kind enough to like have ju just like sit with me for like an hour and just having that conversation with them and like a lot of them were even giving personal experiences that I, I was amazed because I, I I'm, I'm not saying like I was trying to do it like to check it off the list but I was amazed at the kind of conversation and then I realized just the power of having a discussion about it before you even throw numbers to it like acknowledging it acknowledging that it exists even in a room where people without people that are not in the buckets of the disparities are and they're like you know like we've had to have a conversation about racism it's like it exists it happens how are we playing into this and then so for me I think that's the starting point the conversation having discussions about it and then um, there are many things I can talk about but then the next thing I'll talk about and maybe we can discuss more later is representation representation I, I know like uh, personally I would do a job for zero dollars just for the idea that someone that looks like me is part of a group that is making decisions for people that look like me it's a slippery slope because then on the other hand like you can't just even the people that look like me we have to continually be educated about what's really happening because it tends to happen that when you start getting a little up then you're getting out of those pockets so it's not just saying that oh I'm African-American, I'm representing, is that, are you aware? Are you checking in with your people? Or have you gone to a certain income group where you're like, I have insurance, I don't understand why people can't access flu shots. You know, cause now you're no longer in that category. Is that, are you checking in? Are you still continuing to go back to that? To having conversations or like, um, like here I said, having it start with you. Yeah, it's the conversations and then representation and then even when you are representative, understanding that that comes with the responsibility of continually checking in and not just with your group, because when you're in this category, then it opens you up to the rest of the categories. Because now I'm opened, I like my eyes opened up the plight of Latino women that have the same 
problems of access that my people have. So I, I can I can relate, you know. So for now, I'm just going to talk about this because I've done a couple of projects about it. So I have all sorts of ideas, but uh, I'll start right there for now. Yeah, absolutely. Can I say real quick, where my first conversation happened about a health disparity, I was, so I didn't quite know if I wanted to go into public health yet. And I went and did a certificate program at University of Colorado. And essentially it was a room full of students. It was about three black, black students and the rest were white and in a room of 50. The responsibility as you, you talk about that responsibility as the, the professor started to talk about, well, this is what a health disparity is. This is where we, we feel like it originates from. This is what happens. As I talked earlier about the anxiety that built up and then there was fear put into me because me being one of three black students in that room, there was a joke. A joke came about after this and it said, well, you know all that fried chicken that they eat. And at that time, fear rose up in me. So the anxiety totally left and I could not say a word. I went to Tuskegee University for my undergraduate. And so as a student at an HBCU, I came out unapologetic about anything, the way I walked, the way I talked, the way I learned what I wanted in life, that was instilled in me. At that moment, all of that went out the door. So I, I now can only imagine how a person feels with no education, no background about it. They're being told by a health professional that does not look like them. They have no representation in the room. How, how do they speak up for themselves? And I know at that moment, I couldn't even say I was paralyzed. Like, what just happened? So I can only imagine what that conversation looks like for them. Cause that was my first conversation. Yeah, you all have brought up some really important points, I feel. And I think that it really has to start with a lot of education. If you cannot educate your children and educate your society on a certain level, you can't really get anywhere in life. And education really plays a huge role in health, the way that you can have a quality life and the maybe that you can't have such a quality life. And a lot of people don't realize that, you know, when you lack education, nine times out of 10, you're not going to have a job that will allow you to have benefits, which will include healthcare, allow you to be able to buy food and have accessibility to food that is of quality nature. Nine times out of 10, you may be relying on social programs to get you through and to get possibly your family through. Then that comes with, a lot of different things where um, people are not educated on contraception. So then you have larger families and these uh, groups of people, people are working blue collar jobs, more likely to be hurt on the job or exposed to environmental toxins or various things like that as well. But then you see people that are more educated, that have better health outcomes, they're living longer. They really are able to excess healthcare the way that they need to, whereas maybe someone down the street in a different zip code may not. And one of the things that I, I think about, I was watching uh, this documentary recently where it really talked about um, what's really happening in some of these neighborhoods in America. And the spotlight was on Louisville, Kentucky. And they mentioned how 
in one particular area where it's more affluent, the life expectancy was a good year or two or more than in a neighboring zip code. And that got me thinking when this physician drove through, he was actually the, the liaison for the health department. He's, he oversees it all. And he t- just drove through these various wards and neighborhoods and he showed some of the food places that they had, some of the accessibility that they actually had to various things. And I watched a woman go through the store and just shop and she bought one of these big, kind of like the big banquet dinners where, you know, you can stretch it. It's the family size. And she said that that would get them through in for a few days. And sometimes by the end of the week, there's no food available. So she won't eat or someone won't eat in the family. And you think about the, the issues that they're dealing with. Her husband is disabled. She's not working. And she was volunteering at her local museum. So they're relying fully on social programs in order to get them through. And it really honestly made me think about, this is not unheard of. This is something that's not new. This is something that happens all around America every single day. And if we turn a blind eye to it, we are basically telling people, if you don't make this amount of money, if you don't have this a level of education, is your life actually worth as much? Maybe not so much. You see different levels of equality and even health equity present itself in a lot of these situations. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about the fact that if you're an African-American male and you come into a hospital and you're dressed like you may be a gangbanger, are they gonna treat you the same way as they would someone that is white in a business suit, maybe a CEO or something of that nature? They may not even have to be a CEO, but there is always this connotation that is associated with certain groups and certain races. And that's where we really see a lot of health disparities and health inequalities present themselves. And if we can't sit down and have the conversations and really constantly check in, even when we get in these positions of authority, as Sandra was previously stating, you can't get anywhere. Because just because you're Black and just because there's representation in place, that means nothing when it comes down to actually doing the work. And just as Lakia and I were talking about earlier before we kind of started the formal chat, we really mentioned how being in the room is different than having a seat at the table. There are people that are making decisions for people that are African-American and people of color that look absolutely nothing like them. How is that possible in 2021 It cannot be the norm any longer. We have to continue to break these glass ceilings that have been created by this societal construct. If we cannot work to break these barriers that have been placed in front of us and say, no, I'm gonna move mountains when it comes to public health, when it comes to health disparities, when it comes to health equity, our people and people of color are going to continue to suffer for generations and it's going to be ingrained within our DNA. Why are we more prevalent to have heart disease, strokes, high blood pressure? Because guess what? Trauma is ingrained in our DNA. Various health choices, negative health behaviors are ingrained in our DNA. People think that, oh, the buck stops here. When you have children, oh, they'll have a totally different life if they eat a certain way. It's called being predisposed for a reason. 
If you're predisposed to various things, it's in your genetic code, just like, you know, various people may be predisposed to cancer. If your mother had it, grandmother had it, various things, as we see with BRCA, you are more likely to have breast cancer or some level of gynecological cancer. And that's the thing. We have to really focus on these things and what we're doing about these things. I think of like, so when you were talking about the, the access to healthcare and, and just thinking about right now with COVID, you have those, those families, those large families and in and, and Jefferson County, it's a large Hispanic population there, um, but it's also a large white population there. There's really no, nothing else in the middle. When I'm calling and, and, and saying, okay, you know, we've received your test results, you're positive, their first thing out of their mouth is, I can't take off of work. So they can go to the doctor. They have the benefits. I can't take off of work. I don't know what else to do. Can you get me back to work? And I'm like, no, there's, there's nothing that I can do but have that conversation with your boss. That was something I was not supposed to do at all because they frowned upon it like, well, that, that has nothing to do with you. But it does have all to do with me. This person cannot take off of work Therefore, they can't stay home and get healthy and, and rest it up, you know, move past that headache or, or the body aches that they're, they're experiencing. So yes, I was the one who have a phone conversations with their bosses and also try to set up programs just working in regulated facilities. We often, you know, have these relationships with the different restaurants and childcare centers in the area. And so if I knew someone it's me picking up the phone to call, hey, this is a conversation only between me and you, you know, your employee, this person, they're scared to take off of work because they don't want to lose any money. They don't want to lose their job. How do we keep them from losing their jobs? That was that one little thing was just like, oh my God, thank you. Thank you for having that conversation. But that happens more often than, than we know, like they just can't take off of work. And it's something as simple as that that can determine where their how their health goes, where it goes, to what level, how sick do you get? They don't have access to those infusions. They don't have access to even right now vaccines. I feel when I got my my first dose, I felt so bad, not health wise, because of the level of privilege that I had at that moment. They don't even have access to that. So when you said that, that automatically thought made me think about just their ability to even stay home when they're sick to get better. Additionally, the pandemic has made us realize that uh, we're not, I think it did push public health to the forefront because it's one of those things where clinical medicine has to depend on public health, like because you prefer to not have people sick than to have people sick. And I remember like, um, I don't know if there was ever anything that showed the importance of that, maybe maybe HIV AIDS, like, you know, you really have to work on that preventative. Uh, Amber talked about nutrition, just being aware that food is, is a, a huge percentage of how healthy we are going to be or we're going to stay. Lakia very well explained the side that what happens after you fall sick, and there's a lot of barriers to that, but it's much cheaper to keep people healthy to begin with, so they're not even sick. And if we do not set up our communities where people are not only aware, but have access 
two services and I would say goods, maybe like in the sense of food or parks where they can go exercise, things that keep them away from being sick. In the United States, even, even the most moneyed person, or the richest person will have a hard time if they have some of these diseases like cancer. Cancer is very expensive for anyone. So there are cancers that are preventable. What are we doing to make sure that these communities that have disparities, being aware they have disparities, what are we doing to make sure they don't even have to carry the burden of disease to begin with? Because if someone that has much more worth or is even of a different race is going to have cancer and they will have debt in their family forever, what about someone that's already in a, a race or a disparity, like you're already disadvantaged by a lot of things and then disease comes in, you, you cannot afford to take time off. But like, what are we doing to make sure that people are aware of ways to prevent disease, to prevent all these comorbidities that, uh, you know, or, or like if uh, even just awareness of some of these preventative services, like if they screening, you know, because screening being, I think it's like a secondary way to prevent, just like, are you aware that you can go screen for this in a particular place close to you? Because uh, some of these community health centers can screen for some of these cancers, can uh, check your blood pressure at probably no cost or very low cost, you know? Are you aware that you can go check that and have someone monitor that for you so that it doesn't even get to a point where you have like a full-blown hypertension um, diagnosis. Disparities, it's a beast. It's a huge conversation. But education, just having people educated, having children educated. I feel like I irritate everyone around me because I talk about going to school all the time. You may get a job and that's good. You can get a job and change your life. And, but it's just that there's all this information you need to be aware of. There are all these, these, like this world of people you need to open your eyes to and your mind to. We, we already have to struggle through our circumstances. But like, uh, like you said, how much more? Uh, how much harder is it going to be if you're in a room and you, you already have like these insecurities of, oh, I'm not educated enough, or maybe she didn't understand what I said, or, you know, so like just the value of teaching our communities that we have to educate ourselves out of this, not only that we will be able to make a living and, and, and have health insurance and have all these things, but we'll open our mind up to the possibilities out there, we'll open our mind up to what we have to do to not even get sick to begin with. Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point there, Sandra, when you indicated really people understanding things when they're not educated. You think about the fact that there are a lot of patients that medications are just pushed on because they don't completely understand the chemistry of things. You really hear a lot of students say, well, why do we need chemistry? Why do we need biology? Why do we need to study any of these things? That's the prime reason right there. Having a basic level understanding of a lot of things that are happening or things that you're putting in your body, even if it comes to things that additives in your food, having the basic understanding of those things goes a long way in life. You may not have to be a nutritionist or an expert in nutrition to understand various things or a pharmacist or in pharmacology in order to understand drugs and basically their, inter their chemical interactions in your body. But when you study these things on you know, a decent level and educate your mind and really do the research for yourself, you're really less prone to being misinformed. 
and to really being taken advantage of in a lot of different cases. And I'm not indicating that, you know, physicians or various healthcare providers are going to take advantage of people, but it is very possible that people will say, well, you know, they don't know about this anyways. So they'll just push on patients, their own personal agenda, or what they think that this person should have, but not realizing that not everyone's body reacts to this, to medications the same way reacts to treatments the same way. Everything is not by the book. And I think a lot of times we miss the point when it comes to patients of color. There are patients of color that deal with disease burden and incidence on a far greater scale than people that are not of color. So certain treatment regimens are just not gonna work for them. If you already have a patient that is of color, a black woman that's coming in for breast cancer screening. Nine times out of 10, she's probably coming in a little bit later than she should. Then if she is diagnosed, her cancer is gonna be more aggressive in terms of where it is in the stages than someone who is not of color. Because think about the fact of previously, prior to Obamacare, preventative care was not free. It, was, it wasn't, extremely expensive, but it was one of those things where if you didn't have the money and you lived in, you know, low income neighborhoods, or you had a job that really wasn't fulfilling what it needed to fulfill in terms of your benefits. Oh my gosh, people have to pick and choose between going to the doctor and feeding their families. Why is that the case? Why is it something that should be on the table? Your health versus your, your food and being able to live, health is wealth. And if you can't take care of yourself, like I tell people all the time, if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. So this job that you're doing, these other people that you're supporting, if you don't take care of home, which is your internal body first, you're going to be in a position where people behind you are just going to fall, you know, burden and victim to the situations that happen thereafter. If you're already impoverished and you're the primary breadwinner for your family and you're not taking care of your family, God forbid you die, who takes care of your family? Who allows these cycles to be broken? And it's really understanding that these things, health disparities are cyclical in nature, fundamentally. And if you don't sit back and say, oh my gosh, there's something that we have to do to educate our people first and really break the mold in terms of health inequities and just inequities in general, you can't get anywhere when it comes to health disparities. There will constantly be this divide between rich and poor, black and white, um, you know, Latino and various other communities of color because these people are literally fighting battles every single day. Battles that are in their own internal homes, inside of their bodies, in their minds, various other things. And we don't put a focus on the physical, the mental, the social well-being of people. All of these things contribute to people's health disparities and health outcomes. So I remember from the Black Lives Movement, uh, there was a push for more social, I would say like social workers or psychosocial for educated in that field to be added to the police forces. And I think about how it's necessary to really add them to every part of service delivery. And not that they're not there right now, but you, you know that um, social workers are, and I guess they're not even considered priority in most departments. And yet, 
everything that we're talking about, you'd like to think that it would be the social workers because they work so intimately with people in the communities they serve, whether it's a social worker in a hospital and they have to help patients navigate the system, like beyond just benefits, but understanding like, you know, uh, how are you situated? If you go home today, will you be able to take care of yourself? Whether it's in the hospital, in schools, in uh, in workplaces, if we have an HIV AIDS program, how many social workers are on that program? The priority will probably be getting medical doctors. We need medical services, but you have social workers to help people navigate what the, what the health system looks like. Uh, if they're not stably housed, help them get housing. If uh, you know, And are they well-funded? It should be one of those fields where people want to go to it, not just for money, like, uh, but it should should be that you're not having social workers take up so much burden that they're not even they can't even work basically because I know so many of them that I know like Kia kind of um, mentioned something earlier that she's going to do something that's not even in her scope of work just to go that extra mile to make sure that someone can be able to get paid even when they don't go into work we should have social workers everywhere trying to make sure that all this is happening and while doing that educating people about what you can do to get yourself out of a conundrum like that the next time it happens. And I feel like um, uh, right now that the new project we're working on is looking at social determinants. And, and I'm so glad that I even get to work with our social workers because now I'm like, I, I realized in the first project that they actually have the bulk of the solution to what the problem is. Because as a quality manager, I'll come in, you know, draw the numbers. I'm like, oh, we went up from 73 to 78, good. And then they'll be like, the project was a success. But the actual success is if it's a disparity in the 5% that have increased the rate, what, what is the new perception now of care? What, what do they know that's different from what they knew? See, we don't even measure that most times. Like even in research, you're like, um, yeah, you know, the rates increased 10%, so this is a success. But do we do enough research to see, uh, was there like a change in knowledge and attitudes and practices from the people that we actually had that research? Have they changed? Like, is it, have they become trainers of trainers now? Like, are they going to go from this program and go out and make sure that people are educated about this? So I think um, we definitely need our government to invest more in the social workers and the social work to spread the kinds of messages and have these conversations with communities. I would absolutely agree with that. And in public health has been bought to the forefront. Our money was taken away in the beginning. No shade, but it is shade. Our money was taken away. And now all of a sudden, we need you. We need you. So now what can we do to get you guys back? Yeah. So you're looking at, at the government. Also policy. Where do you begin to change the policy and close that wealth gap? You talked about the wealth gap. And so then I think about Medicaid. Those that have high wealth don't see the value in Medicaid. So therefore, Obamacare, like all of that was just this socialist project. And so they did not and still don't see the value in it. And I have a personal thing with it where my mother, when she was diagnosed with cancer, that was the only way she found it. In the beginning, before Obamacare happened, did not fall within that range of, of being able to get it. And once that happened, it, it widened that range and she was able to get Medicaid. And then she could go to the doctor and there's that access. The value was put into what that brought to communities. Where do we begin to, to speak with our lawmakers about this? So that's another way, you know, we could possibly 
begin to address it. Of course, that's the highest level, but you know. Yeah, absolutely. And really even starting at the community level, a lot of times I think that's that's something that people don't quite tap into enough. And if you don't tap into the communities that are being burdened by these issues, how can you get anywhere when you're trying to scale up? And a lot of times, of course, in public health, they teach us community, 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 start these programs here in the community. And it, it becomes so ingrained in your psyche that you feel like, oh my gosh, is it really that simple to just empower your community members, to empower people to be able to make their own health choices, to be able to get out of this, this hole that they've been in for so long that wasn't even dug by them a lot of times. It's just people are just constantly piling the dirt on, on topping them and burying them alive and these issues that they're constantly dealing with and that they have to constantly manage. And I really think about the fact of just the accessibility to health is such a privilege. Being able to say, I can go to the doctor, I can have a telemedicine or a telehealth visit during a pandemic. Being able to you know, have friends and family members that are physicians call them up and say, hey, something's going on, you know, bounce those ideas off of them. That's a privilege to be able to do that. And I think that a lot of times, even in my own life, I've seen how as my educational level increases, my social circle becomes very different. The availability of me being able to speak to physicians, to speak to people that are policymakers, to speak to people that are lawmakers, various other things, it becomes very different from that of me being just this 18 year old girl or something, just coming out of high school, not really knowing anything, not coming from money, you know, coming from humble beginnings in a sense, coming from a household where I had a single mother. And she worked very, very hard. And a lot of people would say, oh my gosh, you've been blessed and you've had, you know, a lot of different opportunities and various things. But that's because of my mother working so hard on her own education, her own pursuits to be able to achieve this level of, she has to make sure that her educational pursuits align with the life that she wants to actually create for herself. And then as you see, even in my own family, we see there's a, there's a bit of a divide when it comes to health circumstances, where some of you know, my family members may not have that background, you know, having um, a high school diploma or you know, having gone to college or various other things versus people in my family that have done so and some of them that may have gotten their doctorates. It is very, very different. And it's so disheartening to see that their level of access and their level of being able to really mitigate some of their health circumstances is very different and how they're prone to so much misinformation, especially during this pandemic. And that becomes a huge thing that we have to tackle when it comes to health disparities. Because if you have people with already existent comorbidities, and then you pile on a pandemic on top of that, that can create another set of comorbidities and cascading events for the human body and for people's overall well-being, 
that becomes a huge feat to undertake. And as Sandra mentioned, social workers, oh my gosh, they're like gifts from God, they're angels, because they do so much work and they're pulled in so many different directions. They're stretched so thin and they don't really receive the recognition that they should get and the seat at the table that they should have when it comes to discussing a lot of these things. When people are discharged from the hospital or people are going through various crises, who do they nine times out of 10 call? A social worker. These people are relying on them and the case manager to follow up post being discharged in even days, weeks, months thereafter. And so a lot of times the physician only sees the patient for this length of time, for a very, very short amount of time. But when it comes to other sectors, such as public health professionals, we're constantly tracking the data, following up with people when it comes to COVID-19 and what's going on with them on a daily basis. Even the CDC, I was told, um, sends daily texts to people that have gotten the vaccine. And that's something different than I've ever seen before, something that we've not done. But I think because there's such scrutiny and there's such a magnifying glass on public health to do our job at this point, not saying that we weren't doing it before, but I think a lot of people didn't have the greatest idea of what do we do in public health? exactly what we what the name says we secure the public's health that's our job and if we're not being able to do our job if we're not funded in the way that we should be just as Lakia mentioned earlier in the conversation how in the world can we quell health disparities how can we even achieve a level of health equity we can talk all we want about these things but until we are funded until we are able to have a level of autonomy to be able to do our job from a policy standpoint, there's no way we can make headway in these circumstances. We can try, but it's just like basically talking, it's speaking to deaf ears at that point in time. There goes that value again. You have to have value in that life, that, that person's life or, or people's life or, or whatever they're going through. This, it, it's a beast. This, this thing is a beast. It starts at the community levels. It starts at the individual levels. It starts at the government levels, but how do you bring all those together? Mm-hmm. How do you begin? That, that is where that, that fight happens because not everybody values what we're speaking about. Everybody has a platform. Everybody has a cause. Why is your cause even you know, better than this other person's? Mm-hmm. Once again, there's no value in, in what we're fighting for. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, Lakia, you talked about policy and I'm going to talk about uh, like two organizations that I belong to that happen to be public health organizations that I felt have been very exemplary, exemplary in what we should do in public health. So AIDS Healthcare Foundation is the first place I've ever worked that has an actual advocacy department. It has an advocacy department. I, a huge chunk of our budget is spent on like health communication and marketing. Uh, depending on where you live, you'll find like an AHF billboard. Sometimes the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, the AHF is just a little thing in the corner, but it will be a billboard that is very attention grabbing, sometimes controversial, but just trying to get uh, people to pay attention to public health um, uh, stories. But even beyond the billboards, 
when there's like a proposition that's regarding health, the president will have a budget towards it. They expect us, employees of HF, we're about like 4,000 maybe around the United States to participate. If we have to call for that proposition, to like vote yes, we have to call, we have to text, we have to like be involved. And, and when they do send out the mass emails, they really keep you updated. Our website is just like all this advocacy that's going on locally and globally. And um, on top of that, they have four affinity groups that focus on disparities. There's one that's called Black, B-L-A-C-C, that um, is not only for staff that are African-American, but it also taps into community members. So it's not just like exclusive to staff, but it's 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 chair, it's uh, championed by staff. And what uh, there's black, there's glad, which is for the uh, glad is for the transgender. There's flax for the MSM of color. Uh, men who have sex with men, that is. And then there is one, there is loud for la Latina population. So these exist. They actually have staff that are de that are dedicated to those particular causes, but they, they start on, they make sure that we join, we're aware of it and we're, we're part of the activities. Then we attract communities and community members to come and be part of those activities so that in those pockets, we will advocate. There's a, there's a point, I, we don't do it lately, but there's a point like um, would, uh, they would have like texts that like the staff will draft text for a, a text, like a text that will either send to a number that a senator has or, or tweet at them. And you all meet and tweet at them at the same time that it's going to be forced to trend. Um, so like, uh, uh, depending on what's going on, especially do, close to where they're going to vote on something. So like we'll meet um, nationally, even if it's in California, we'll meet nationally and all send tweets at the same time to, to like um, Senator Kam Kamala Harris, or they'll draft an email for you, then you'll send it to the office. Because it's kind of hard for you to even know that you can send an email to the senator like you know but like depending on what's going on so i'll be part of a cause in florida i'll be part of a cause in atlanta like we'll just tweet at the same time they give you you just need to customize it to you know who you are whatever but um um like when i found out that this is there and even when i see stuff not like they don't it's not a lot of them that participate i'm like this is such an amazing platform and I've not been to a lot of organizations because we are HIV AIDS. We are tweeting about housing, food, like anything that's going to affect uh, uh, not just our clients, but the social well, the, the health determinants. We're going to tweet about it and we're going to shame the senator if they voted. <laughs> so, but I, I, was so, I was so impressed that there was that. And then the other thing that AIDS Healthcare Foundation and Johns Hopkins did or does is like what you're talking about like here, if your staff or your patients are not only working with people dealing with a pandemic, but also are part of the pandemic where like we, we you know, I, I did get COVID at one point. So like, what are these organizations doing to set an example for a law firm? Are you making sure you, your, your, your staff are compensated even when they have to take time off? Are you taking care of childcare? Are you giving them extra money for childcare? AHF did give like extra 500 for groceries at the beginning for people that earn below a certain income. Um, uh, Johns Hopkins, like they tell you like if 
they have a, they change everything to pass and fail policy. You can opt for pass and fail if you feel like the letter grade is going to be too much, for, too much pressure for you. You do pass and fail and pass is above 65%. And I saw them advertise for childcare policies as well. What are the healthcare organizations? What are the departments of health doing? So that when a law firm is like, what do we do? They see that you're already doing it. You're not just talking about it, you're exemplifying it. You're making sure that your staff are taken care of because they take care of other people. But when you're telling companies that make sure that your staff are, you know, they can't stay out sick and still get paid, are you doing it as well? Yeah, I think that's phenomenal. And really, as we, we wrap up our discussion here today on health disparities, I'm realizing that there's so much more that we can really be discussing, that this is going to have to be a series for, for us here on the Public Health Me podcast, because it's such a big deal. And there are so many different levels to it. And if we don't address it at its fundamental levels, then it becomes one of those things that it just spirals out of control, it becomes like a wildfire. If you don't address it at its source, you're just, you're not going to be able to deal with it in a way. And really one thing that I want to kind of end on here today is for you all, I want to pose this question to you all. In a perfect world, if there were no strings attached, there were no barriers to being able to, barriers for implementation, what would you all do in terms of health disparities and really quelling them? in communities that are disadvantaged. I know that that's a, that's a tough one because there's so many different things that you could do, but if you could think of possibly in your perfect world, what would you possibly do? Develop partnerships. So bringing that village together because just addressing even to get someone's oil changed is, is overwhelming to, to some populations. And so just um, leveraging partnerships with the medical offices, the doctors, the social workers, how do we give wraparound services where needed, mental health, public health, just tapping into everybody and then just bring it out to, to that individual. It would be very costly, but that would be my perfect world. It's very expensive. That's what I would do, leverage partnerships. First of all, like it has such a great answer that I don't know if I can say anything that's better than that. So I do agree with her, but I guess I'll just uh, reemphasize uh, the need for education, whether it's about this particular topic that disparities exist or, or just making sure that everyone has like that basic knowledge to make an informed decision about what they're going to eat, where they're going to live, the air quality levels, the water quality levels, the lead, like all these things that we only found in public health school. I think there's no reason why people shouldn't be aware that where they live may have lead poisoning. Like, how am I learning that at a master's level? <laughs> well, that's when I got to find out. But uh, just like there's got to be, uh, that, that would be like in a perfect world, everyone would be educated about these things so that they make decisions that they advocate if they realize that in their neighborhood, because it's a black neighborhood, there's this whole bill to have liquor stores and smoking vape shops and all that. They're like, no, we don't want that. We want less of fast food. We want more of Trader Joe's. Why is that only in the richer neighborhoods? Uh, and then like grocery stores, like we're only getting like a Walmart that has like a tiny little section that has produce. And then there's a liquor store right next to it. And now I have to drive six miles to go to a place that has produce. Um, 
So just uh, just the awareness and the education that you know, so that people can make these informed decisions. And and Amber, now that we're here and we're concluding, like I'm so grateful that we had this conversation because really, just the conversations about this, uh, whether it's stemming out of us who do public health for a living, uh, or, ju or just like encouraging us to have these conversations at dinner. Uh, you know, or, or on Zoom or on phone calls or just make sure the people around us are aware that this happens. And when we happen to be in the categories that this, that, that have that, mis like the misfortune of being a disparity, we have to push even a little extra. I did make sure that all my providers are African-American. I switched that sometime, like I made a decision called Kaiser, African-American, if I call in for, was, uh, we've been having like a employee assistant, assistance program, like I need an African-American female to talk to. And not only uh, do they end up not, not being picked by the other populations, which you know is not fair to them or may affect their money, but they will also talk about things that I know affect them just like they affect me and representation. We need, if we demand more for them, then people will know that you can't have a department without African-Americans there. And I think it starts with us. We can't be the people that prefer to have like a white professional and yet we are saying we need representation, you know, so little things like that. I think that's, that's phenomenal, you know, and I will also, answer the question that I posed to the group because I can't, you know, throw it out there without at least putting my spin on it. I think really ensuring that we are very communicative in what we're doing and understanding that although we may not be able to get exactly where we want to be, that we can constantly keep pounding the pavement and if we're communicating with people, if we're allowing people to know that these are issues that are affecting communities, whole communities out here full of millions, hundreds of millions of people, um, not even just in the US, but globally, understanding that these are real faces behind these disparities. These are real families that are being affected. As I think about the COVID-19 pandemic, I think about the, the vast number of African-Americans who have been disproportionately affected, how we've seen people, whole families decimated by this pandemic. If we took the same approach and we communicated as much about health disparities and educating communities of color regarding health, just overall health, we could make so much headway when it comes to these things, but because we're constantly silent, because the information is not there, because there's not enough representation, there are not enough people that are allowed to have seats at the table that you know really can voice from a standpoint of, hey, this actually affected me. Going back to what Lakia said at the top of the conversation, this affects me, this affects my community, this affects my family. It may not be where I am today, with me sitting, you know, in my my Gucci pumps or you know my high class of being in a higher social status, but the fact that I came from humble beginnings or the fact that I have family members that are constantly waging their own epidemics on a daily basis when it comes to health disparities, if we're not communicative about these things, it becomes a situation where our voices are silenced. And in 2021, we can no longer allow ourselves to be silenced, allow our communities to be silenced by the things that constantly plague them 
it's as they have recently mentioned, African-Americans are really fighting two pandemics or more at this time. It's not just COVID-19, it's racial injustice as well. And with racial injustice comes a level of health disparities because your life is not seen as valuable. And if you don't have value placed on your life, how can you actually have a good life? Be able to live to see your life expectancy. And that's a huge deal. And I'm so, so glad that I've had the opportunity that to really discuss this with you all today. And I really hope that you all will be able to come back and join us for another roundtable or panel or one-on-one -on -one session, whatever it is. Um, I really appreciated this. And I really think it's good information for people to know that it exists and to be able to now, once you're now educated, as we constantly keep stressing in this episode, then now you can do something about what you know about. Don't turn a blind eye. It's right there in your face. So either you're gonna turn your head and pretend that it's not gonna smack you in the face when it, when it comes down to it, or you're gonna address it head on. And I think that's one of the great things that we're able to do here on this podcast, having these candid conversations about things that really matter, things that really affect communities every single day. So thank you ladies so much for your time. Thank you all for listening here today to the Public Health Me podcast. And please join us again the next time around because we're going to have great conversations over the next, I want to say 15 episodes are still up. Please join us for more conversations. You all will really enjoy what we have to say. Thanks so much. Thank you everyone. so much. Thank you. Thank you.